Will you please open up to the book of 1 John? We're going to be looking at the passage that was just read for us. Actually, a good bit more than that, but including that. So if you have one of the Bibles in the chairs by you, I believe it's... I want you to look at um, page 1022 is where we're going to start the beginning, and then we might work a little bit back from there. But again, that's 1 John. We'll be looking first, starting at chapter 3, and then we'll be moving a little bit back. As you just keep a, a finger there to be able to turn to it in a couple minutes. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We are so humbled by the opportunity to be able to be together and to be before you to worship you. And we pray that now, during this time, as we open your word, Lord, that you would please guide us, that you would lead us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, imagine for a second that you have come to a beautiful art museum. And you go through the entrance of that museum and you walk in and there's an incredible lobby with an amazing spiral staircase straight ahead of you that is going up to the top of the building. And and you can see, as you look around that staircase, that there are different pieces of art on the walls that people pass along the way. And so you decide you want to have a look. You walk up to the staircase, and you start to take some steps. And as you do, and as you start to go around it, you come across the first piece of art, piece of art, and you look at it, and there's a description next to it. Um, you take it in, you appreciate it, and then you move on. You take a few more steps, and as you continue going around, you come across another piece, and same thing. You read about it, and you look at it for a moment. You keep walking, and then a few more steps later, the same thing. A third piece, you appreciate it, you pause, You keep walking, and as you keep walking from that one, you keep coming around the stairs. Now you start to see the first piece that you saw, but it's different because this time, rather than looking up at the piece like you were before, having gone up the stairs and having now come back around, you're now looking down at it. And it's, it's the same piece, but you're now starting to see different things about it, things that you couldn't see before, all because you're now looking at it with a different perspective. There are some ways that reading the book of 1 John can feel like this. And I just want to say, by the way, if you're new here this morning or if you're watching us online maybe for the first time this morning, we're in a series in 1 John that's going to run through the end of next month, so through July. And we've been seeing from the beginning that John's writing to a group of Christians that were living in a time that was really confusing. There were people teaching some very confusing things. And one of the things he's wanting to do is to assure these Christians and give them clarity on knowing what to believe and how to live. Now, I said that this is like reading, or reading this is like ascending a staircase. How is that the case? And here's how. One of the ways that John's different as a writer and that this book can feel different than other books is that compared to other writers, John's not as linear. In some ways, John repeats himself. Um, Reading John is not like going up to an art museum and maybe riding an escalator and just going up where all the pieces that you might pass on that way up to the next level are new, and it's the first time that you've seen them. It's probably going to be the last time that you see them. 
That's not what John is like. Again, he, he reminds us of things that he's already mentioned them before, but because we're looking at them now at different angles, we're getting to appreciate them in new ways. And, and that's, friends, in some ways what we're going to see as we get to what's a really large chunk of Scripture that we're going to be walking through today. In chapter 2, verse 7, which is where we're going to start, really through the end, or I should say through chapter 3, verse 10, which if I'm honest, that's, that's pretty intimidating to me for us to try to take on this amount of Scripture. It's not going to be as intimidating as it first seems, and one of the reasons being because, again, John is touching on things in some ways that we've already seen. We can probably um, sum it up in, in verse 310, which we're going to get to uh, in just a second. Last week, we saw that one of the things that John's showing us in the Christian life is that the Christian life looks different. And you can say the same thing when you get to these verses from today as he's painting this picture about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and living in obedience to Jesus. This is how he sums it up in that verse in 10. Listen to this. This is really important. And follow the logic. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Three themes in those verses that we're going to be seeing, again, teased out and touched on in different ways in all these verses. And in many ways, you could say these three different themes that he's addressing are different hallmarks of the Christian life. So one, he's writing about a Christian's loves. Two, a Christian's likeness. And three, a Christian's lifestyle. And if, just for a few minutes this morning, we could imagine these different emphases as different pieces of art on the, the walls of, of this building, that is the, the first letter of John, what we're going to do is we're going to be learning about them as we continue to ascend. Some of them, they're going to seem new. Some of them are going to have, again, seen them before, but we're going to be learning new things because we're going to be looking at them from different angles. Again, three key ways to Christian life's distinct. Let's start with the first one now as we go to the passage. And that's number one, a Christian's loves. If we were to go out into Birmingham today and we were to try to take a poll from people and say, look, what, what's Christianity about? What, what were the teachings of Jesus really about? If we were to try to boil all that down to one word and ask, what's that word, people? Don't we think one of the top answers that they'd probably give us is love. That Christianity is about love, that Jesus' life was about love. And we hear that. And when we think that, we're, we're normally assuming, or we're all thinking about the love as it is expressed or manifested in the context of relationships, loving other people. Now, one of the interesting things is you look at Jesus' life, his teachings, the things that he said with other people, you look at the New Testament. And if you look very carefully, what we start to see, including in this passage today, is that the Bible's definition of Christian love is much, much broader than that. It's more nuanced than that. So it includes loving other people. It also includes other things. One way that you could describe what John's writing about in chapter 2, verses, two, verses 7 through 27, is that he's telling us about Christian love, the things that we're supposed to love. And we're going to see 
him commenting on three things that he emphasizes, okay? So one, we're going to see there's, a, there's an emphasis for Christians to love other Christians. Two, he's going to show us we're called to love God, not the world. And number three, he's going to emphasize something that we don't tend to think about much when we talk about Christian love, and that is that as Christians, we're equally supposed to have a love not just for people, but for the truth. So let's go to the first one that he shows us in this passage as as we're thinking about this call to love other people. As we get into this, John is connecting here a theme that he's been talking about so far in the book, which is walking in the light. Remember, he's, he's touched on the idea that God is light already in this book. And then look at the way that he connects this walking in the light with the call to love other Christians. Verse nine, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So the Christian that hates his brother, we assume, or sister, is still in darkness. On the other hand, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. There's that theme again. God is light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So again, there's a connection, John says, in the Christian life between this experience of walking in the light and specifically, of all, think about all the different things that he could touch on. He doesn't go from walking in the light to talking about caring for the poor. In this case, he's not talking about sexual purity. Uh, he is not talking about um, money and possessions. There's all these different things the scriptures talk about as a part of the Christian life. He goes right to talking about loving other Christians. And it's really simple. He says, if, if you hate another Christian, and this seems to be more than just being offended by another Christian or having a strong disagreement with another Christian, but it seems like he's saying, look, if you've got an orientation to another Christian where you've got that sort of anger, that stews, you ever had that? You ever, you ever relive some conversations when you're brushing your teeth at night? If you've got this sort of orientation where you look at them, if you're not saying it out loud, you are, you are judging them internally, you are shaming them, you are condemning them. If you have that attitude as a Christian in an ongoing way to another brother and sister in Christ, we've got a problem. And the problem's not just a matter of disobedience, though that is a problem, but there's something going on here that John says is there's actually a red flag. There's sort of an indicator that something's off on the inside of us internally. There's, there's almost what you could call a gospel cognitive dissonance. And what's the cognitive dissonance? The problem is that on one hand, how can we look at anybody else and have that desire or, or to that degree want to wish shame on them, to leverage our, our judgment over them, to condemn them, maybe to tell them all those things. How can we experience that with anybody else, particularly somebody that we know through faith has been cleansed by the blood of Christ and at the same time receive the love and the mercy of God with whom he has the right to have all those things against us and yet he's forgiven us in Jesus. That doesn't add up. 
It doesn't make sense. It's like saying, God, I wish, I wish this person, or I wish everybody else what they would get, what they deserve except me. God, please don't give me what they deserve. But that woman or that man that is just driving me crazy, I, I, I wish they would get what they deserve. You see how incompatible these things are. That's why John's saying you hate does not go with Christian community. We, again, we're not talking about wronging each other. You know, you go to places like Matthew 18, and it talks about what we're to do in different situations when, when someone has wronged us. Not talking about disagreement. We read, you know, uh, Paul has that disagreement uh, early in Acts when they're trying to figure out what to do and who to take with them. What we're talking about, again, is a kind of deep-seated, ongoing judgment and condemnation of someone else that, again, is a fellow follower of Jesus. So we've got to love other Christians. We're not supposed to love the world. So verse 15, if you've got a Bible by you, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, what is John talking about here? You ever, wonder, you ever read that and wonder, how can John say, don't love the world? I mean, didn't John also write John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Didn't, doesn't God love the world in the Bible? You go places like Psalm 24, verse one, and it says the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. Didn't God create the world as good? So how can John then look at us and say, Christians don't love the world, the answer is there if you keep reading. Verse 16 gives us a clue. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. So, so John's not saying, look, don't love creation, don't appreciate these trees, mountains, seas, Natural beauty, he's not saying that. Look at what he points at, the desires of the flesh, of the eyes, of pride. All of these things, don't they? They have to do with people. He's talking about realities of the human heart and, and our natural inclination to love God, I should say to love other things more than we ever love God. That's what he's getting at here. When, when he's saying that, look, Christians, when it comes to your loves, what we might call affections. When it comes to these, to these things, make sure you are to set them on God above all things. Because again, when it comes to the desires of the flesh, of the eyes, of pride, when we think about those things, we naturally don't set them on God. Saying protect your love for God by not falling in love with the things of the world. Don't love the world in this sense. Serve it, have a redempting presence in it but don't make it an idol. Make God your first love. So people, not the world. And then the last one, this, this other thing that we don't tend to think about Christians needing to have as much when it comes to love, that's a love for the truth. And for the sake of our time this morning, we're not gonna walk through every verse as he gets into this in 18 through 27, as in depth as we could. But if you look at them carefully, it's obvious 
Christians are supposed to have a love for what is true. If you look, for example, at the heading in the ESV, it, it gets this part and has this editorial comment, warning concerning Antichrist. Whoa. And we read about John talking about the, the Antichrist, singular, Antichrist, plural. You will see different people interpret these in different ways in the ways that they're understanding those and their presence in the world. But one thing's really clear. There is no question there is such a thing as false teachers. And Jesus even uses a very similar word for Christ. In Matthew 24, verse 24, look, listen to what he says. I've, I've never noticed this before until preparing for this. For false Christ, in fo- plural, and false prophets will arise. What are they gonna do, Jesus? And perform great signs and wonders so as, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Jesus said, there's gonna be people that are gonna come along. They're gonna lead people astray from what we've always known about Jesus. And, and the most dangerous thing, it seems, about them is gonna be that they have the appearance of legitimacy. So he says in that verse, he talks about signs and wonders. You go to 1 John and we know in its context, the legitimacy seems to be from the fact that these people were coming, these false teachers from inside of Christian community. We know that's where the real threat for us as Christians from, comes from, doesn't it? Even 2,000 years later, the, the, the people that are most likely to lead ordinary, everyday Christians astray are not people that claim to be atheists or claim to be people that are coming from a, a different religion. It's people that self-identify as Christian, isn't it? People that know their Bible, but they also think very highly of themselves and They're learning. They're enlightened. Some of them are theologians. Some of them pastors. Sometimes leading Christians to think things that are, if not a distortion of Christianity, outright contradictory to Christianity. And what John's saying, look at verse 21. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. That's why I'm writing you. So don't be deceived when it comes to the truth. Stick with it. Fight for it. Hold on to it. Love it. You're to value it. So let's step back just for a second. Think about what we've seen so far. We're seeing this, this vision of love in the Christian life. It's a lot broader than we normally tend to think. It includes people. Again, on one hand, it is personal. It's about people, particularly other Christians in our lives and not just in the church, but we would assume any other Christian groups that we might be a part of or our family or our friends. It's about people in the sense of other Christians and and of course about God and not the world. But it's personal and, sounds a little clunky, but throw a little alliteration in there. It's propositional. So it's about ideas. It's about beliefs. It's about right beliefs. And we say that because Jesus taught about beliefs. He taught ideas to believe in him, to follow him. And one of the things that this does as we look at this is is like something we saw last week. This pushes back for us against two common distortions that you can see even within the church that people have of Jesus' teachings and really Christianity. 
So on one hand, we have the people that look at Jesus's life and, and they see the core of his life and the essence of his life. It's not so much about truth. It's really about love. It's all about how we treat other people and caring for other people, serving other people, especially those in need. Those are great things, but, but it comes often at the expense of, well, we know this is true. We, we don't really know how much we have to believe that he really was the son of God, that he really died for people's sins like he said that he did, and that he really physically rose from the dead. Those are more sort of optional. John says that's not an option. It also pushes back against us who tend to emphasize the truth over people. And that say, look, when you look at Christianity, it's really all about right, right belief. As long as you believe the right things about Jesus, it really doesn't matter how you treat other people, including other Christians that you're in community with. As long as you got the right doctrine down, you're good to go. John says, look, when it comes to the things you love as a Christian, it can't just be people. It can't be truth alone. It's got to be both of these. So if you go back to this image of the, the staircase for a second, just bear with me. Imagine ourselves, we, we've passed that piece on the wall, Katie's loves, and now we come to a second one. And that's this emphasis that John has on likeness, on our likeness as Christians. I don't know about you, uh, you ever seen a, a little boy or a little girl that looks exactly like one of their parents? When I was growing up, I looked just like my dad, even as a little boy. And I would follow my dad to work sometimes. I would go to the hospital where he worked. And even when I was walking down the hall and my dad wasn't anywhere near me, uh, don't get my dad in trouble, by the way. Sometimes he'd let me roam around. Dad, sorry about this. I know you're watching this morning. People would see me and they'd say, oh, you must be Rolf's son. They're, you're Rolf's. They knew that I was Rolf White's son because of my resemblance, because I looked like him. And John says something very similar about what it means to be a Christian, that as, as believers, who have, as people have put their faith in Jesus Christ, God has now made us his children and we're also to bear his likeness. So let's look at this in the passage. First, notice all the language here in chapter three about being God's children. Verse one, see what kind of love the Father's given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Verse two, beloved, we're God's children now. When somebody puts their faith in Jesus Christ, we know they are not the person that they used to be and the fact that they've not... They've now not just been forgiven, they've been adopted as a son or a daughter of God. And, and for a lot of the world, people hear that and they think, well, yeah, kind of we're all God's children, like in a touch by an angel kind of way. Like that's who we all are. No, the Bible says we're not. In fact, it uses very different language in the scriptures. You go to Ephesians 2 and verse 3, and the apostle Paul says that before putting our faith in Jesus Christ, because of our sin and our brokenness and our unwillingness to worship him, we were, what he says, children of wrath. That sounds intense. It's true. But now, because the cross, because of our being forgiven through faith, we've been adopted, we're part of his family, and now we look like him. We're called to look like him. This is why he says what he says in verse 29 talking about practice right, practicing righteousness and connecting it with being in God's family. Verse 29, you may be sure 
that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I have some very good friends that are um, in the midst of doing something that a lot of other people would look at and think is crazy. They're in their uh, later 50s, and they've, they've raised kids. Their kids have left the house, gone to college, started families, and now they're in the process of learning about the possibility of um, actually adopting a young girl they've known through the foster system for many years. Let's be honest. A lot of people their age, or all of us, we look at people considering that, people that have done what they've done, they're, they're maybe on the verge of retirement, and think that that's crazy. Why would you, why would you in some ways seemingly start over, giving yourself to, to the raising of another child when you've got all the good years ahead of you? Time with the grandkids, time to travel, time to play. To the world, it's surprising. To people that know what it's like to be in the family of God, it's not surprising because they know they themselves have been adopted. They serve a heavenly father. And so now in this particular area of their life, they've sensed a leading that way and they feel like it would be disobedient to not do that. Am I saying that everyone in their 50s and older has to adopt a kid today? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that this shouldn't surprise us because they are are living differently because they are part of a new family. And as part of that family, they're bearing the resemblance of their heavenly father. So let's just go back to this image of the staircase again and say, we've we've come to this. We've we've seen the second piece, this likeness piece. We've thought about it for a moment. We're going to continue and go to this last one. And as we look at this, we, we, we stop and squint. We try to read about it because it, it sounds like something that we've, we've seen before in this book already or even further back down the stairs, but it's something that John Stevenson wants to emphasize again, and that's of these different hallmarks we're to have in the Christian life. It's another L or a Christian's lifestyle. If being a children of God and, and resembling him is, um, I should say, if resembling God is a part of being his child and kind of the what of it, the how ends up being living this Christian lifestyle. So these, these last verses of chapter three, John's reinforcing this, this thing that we've already seen before again, especially last week, that we as Christians are called to live differently, to live distinctly. And that sounds very broad. A lot of you might be wondering, what, what do we mean by living differently? And his answer is that we are, as Christians, to have a lifestyle that's different from other people in that we, we do not do something that people that have not put their faith in Jesus Christ or that for them comes as naturally as, as riding a bike downhill. And that is we don't, as followers of Jesus, make a practice of sinning. We don't make a practice of it. We don't, to use his language, we're gonna get to this in a second, keep on sinning. I know some of you have questions about what does John mean when he says Don't keep on sinning. We're going to get to that. Just listen first to chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, all the different ways that John's emphasizing this. We're not going to read. I know some of you might follow me after the sermon and say, hey, there were more verses where this is mentioned. I know. Let me just read a couple because it's all over the place. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
Well, let's go ahead to nine. This is bold. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. What in the world is John talking about? But he says that we don't keep on sinning. He's saying, look, once I become a Christian, I'm now perfect, and I'm never going to make another mistake. I'm never going to think or do something that I should not do. We know that's not the answer. If you've been here for the beginning of the service, we know that from John chapter 1. Why? Because he says, if anyone pretends like they don't have sin, if they say they're without sin, they're lying to themselves. They're, li- they're making a liar of God. But if we confess our sins, it says in 1.9, he is faithful and just to con- Uh, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or then chapter two, he says, I write these things to y'all that you won't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate for the Father, Jesus Christ, who's the propitiation for our sins. So so he's not saying, look, if if you are having any issues with sin in your life, you're obviously not a Christian, you should question your salvation. What is he talking about here? His answer is that Christians or that as followers of Jesus, we're relating to God in a way in which we are not making a, a practice of sin in the, in the sense that of something that we could call uh, unrepentant sin. We as followers of Jesus do not have an attitude when it comes to something that we, shouldn't, that we know that we shouldn't do, and we look at it and say, you know, I know I really shouldn't do this, whatever, and that we do that. We, we don't engage in habits and, and rhythms of life that we know are contradictory to his teachings. And we, and we know this. Let's go to uh, just a few examples. This is in verse, verses 4, 8, and 9. He's using the phrase, making a practice of sin. So this is more than just someone making a mistake and confessing their sins before God, like First John 1. There's a sense of, of uh, frequency, it seems of intentionality. And notice there's a contrast there between the practicing of sin and the practicing of righteousness, which we read about in verses 7 and 20. These are not people, again, who own up to their own mistakes and bring these before God. These are people that are deliberately doing things again and again, knowing this is contrary to God's will. Uh, let me just give an example of this. Um, I was talking with a, a buddy this week who's a priest somewhere else, and, and he was sharing about someone that's been visiting the church that he serves. And this, this person that is uh, visiting with a woman was serving as a pastor in another context, in another church, ended up having an affair with a woman in the church, then left the church and his marriage, in some ways family, and is now shown up to his church with the woman and wants to get married and start a new relationship with the new body of Christ. And he's really struggling with this, not out of condemnation. I mean, this pastor I'm, I'm talking about that's seeking to think how to relate to him. He doesn't think he's better than this other person. He knows he's just as much a sinner, but he does struggle to think, does this under, the person understand the gospel? And John seems to be emphasizing something very similar here. I mean, he, he gives the sense, look, if, if you are someone that is practicing or, or making a habit of sin, you really have some serious thinking to do about whether or not you're actually a child of God. And I think this pastor who was trying to seek some advice was thinking about sharing something very similar with this individual. It it makes us ask ourselves, 
do we ever act that way? Are there things that we know we shouldn't be engaging in or, or maybe patterns of thought that we know we shouldn't be engaging in? And at the same time, we go back to them and, and, and we have no resolve to live differently. So we're back on that staircase. We're, we're, we're ascending this thing that is First John. We look down and we see these things that we've passed. And what I would just want to do by concluding is ask, as we've looked at these different ones, would we all together pray for the Holy Spirit to identify with us? Are there any of these that are pressure points for us? Do we feel any of these the most? Do, do we feel these with the loves, for example? Are there men and women maybe even a child, a child, a Christian child in your life, are there, are there people that get under our skin that we are holding something against? That, that we need most in our times of prayer to come before our heavenly father and say, God, I don't know what to do with this relationship, but I need you to change my heart because I understand what this passage says. And, and right now, all I can feel is anger and all I feel is hate. We could nuance that in a bunch of different ways. I don't have time to do that. But, but we know it's not an option to hold that and to maintain that. Do, do we have a love for God above the world? Are we prioritizing that? Are, are we equally passionate about truth as we are with people? For Christians, sometimes we, again, either have a natural identity with other people. We're always aware of how they're feeling. We're always aware of um, how they're seeing things, sometimes to the extent that we're tempted to compromise on the truth or things that could bring us into conflict with them. Sometimes we have a great emphasis on the truth. We're kind of a jerk <laughs> to other people. Do we see the need for both? Do we see that we have been adopted as a son, as a daughter, that we're to bear his likeness and that as we bear his likeness, we enter into an entirely new way of life where we are modeling our life after the teachings of Jesus as his disciple. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to identify those for us. And then with whatever answer he brings to mind, for me, for you, even as we come forward to this table in just a little bit, okay, would we see that maybe as God's invitation to us through John's writing to continue to be a people that are walking in the light? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.